Let me give a, uh, just a brief word of explanation as to why I'm not continuing this morning in the book of Revelation. We are at a midway point in the book of Revelation. I've already preached through chapter 11. Chapter 12 starts a new section. I've been uh, gone several Sundays this, uh, this summer, and Lord willing, we'll be gone next Sunday for our first week of vacation. Um, I don't want to start in Revelation 12 and then have it be interrupted a, a time or two. And I also would like to uh, have the college students back with us before I continue in Revelation. And they're just about to come back. It's my intention to preach three sermons from Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and then, God willing, uh, start back. Another reason that I'm uh, <clears throat> not getting back started in Revelation today or two weeks from today is because there is uh, some some preparation that I am involved in to try and uh, preach preach that word faithfully, and so I need a little I need a few more weeks to uh, continue my preparation. <clears throat> so I'm buying some time today <coughs> with uh, preaching a sermon that I think has real potential to be. Uh, transformational in the way that we think about the Christian life. This week begins, I think, the Street Rod Nationals. I think that's what it's called when all of these refurbished old cars come into Louisville. And uh, it's really interesting to drive the the streets and interstates in the next few days, just seeing all these beautiful old cars. One year we went to the fairgrounds and uh, spent several hours walking around. Really amazing uh, what these old cars look like and the way they, they get them all fixed up. <clears throat> I've, I've noticed that there will be some old junk cars on trailers, uh, cars that are not running, cars that look like they have been sitting out in a pasture somewhere for years. They're rusty, and uh, it's obvious that they haven't been used for decades. But someone has bought that thing and is going to take it home and make make a beautiful street rod out of it. He's going to replace the engine and uh, replace, I don't know what all, that you just think, wow, how could that old piece of junk that was out there in the pasture or in the barn how could it get turned into this shiny, chrome-covered, beautiful automobile? Just a, a real astounding makeover. Well, in this text that I'm reading this morning, we read about a, a makeover like that that happens with humans. Now, at one time, you know, that old car sitting out there in the pasture, it rolled off the assembly line, and it was shiny, and it looked good. And correlating to that, there was a time when God created humans that we were shiny and covered with chrome and looked good. In fact, the Bible says that we were made in God's image. And being made in God's image doesn't mean that God has a body and that uh, we, look, we look like Him physically because God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. And so it must mean that in spiritual qualities, we were made like God. Spiritual qualities like the ability to uh, understand and appreciate truth. Spiritual qualities like uh, being able to reflect God's standards of right and wrong. So we were morally 
in the image of God. And then the Lord said, if you disobey me, then you're going to die. And that doesn't merely mean that we have to cope with physical death, although I think that was included in it. I think that what the Lord meant primarily was there's going to come uh, a, a severe deterioration of my image in you. Life is inherent in God. He is self-existent. When we were in His image, we drew our life from Him. We drew our sense of truth, sense of right and wrong, and so on. Our sense of purpose in life, we drew it from Him. And when we sinned against Him, it brought about a drastic change. I think that we still remain in the image of God naturally, but we are no longer in His image morally until we begin to be recreated morally in His image. Let me explain what that means. I think that naturally, every human being, whether converted or not, still bears some marks of the image of God. We still have capacity to understand things. We still have affections. We still have wills. We still have a sense of eternity. We are able to make decisions based on memory and in, and in anticipation of the future. And uh, so all of that is just part of being a human being created in the image of God. Other animals don't have that. Not the smartest dolphin, not the smartest whale, not the smartest chimpanzee has those things that I just went over. I mentioned like five or six qualities that we retain naturally in the image of God. But when we sinned, then morally we ceased to be in the image of God. Morally has to do, morally is a word that has to do with uh, everlasting principles of right and wrong that are indissolubly connected with God's character. And in order for that moral likeness to continue, we had to continue united with God in fellowship. And His influence upon us, our communion with Him, would retain that moral likeness so that our understanding was uh, able to perceive truth and, uh, and implement it in our lives. We had a will that was directed towards doing what God wanted us to do. Our affections were directed so that we loved God. Our, our understanding was darkened when we sinned. Uh, that that corridor of light that flowed from God into our minds was shut when sin came between God and us. That moral rectitude whereby we knew what was right and eagerly desired to do what was right, that was severely interrupted when our fellowship with God was, was interfered with by sin. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a junk car sitting out there in the pasture. You look at it and you think, can anything be done with this? Can anything be done with this? And the passage of Scripture that I'm going to try to preach to you this morning says, yes, God has devised a plan whereby that old junk car sitting out there in the pasture can be made new, refurbished in the image of God. And so, uh, let's see what these verses of Scripture have to say to us from 2 Peter chapter 1, 
My intention is just to preach from verses 3 and 4, but in the coming sermons, the next two sermons following this, I hope to preach all the way through verse 11, so I'll read verses 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of evil, of sinful desire. That's what I plan to preach from this morning. You may become a partaker of the divine nature. Now, beginning with verse 5, there is a a practical regimen of, uh, of discipline. This is how you can participate. This is how you can cooperate with what God is doing in making you a partaker of the divine nature. <clears throat> I hope to devote an entire sermon to this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So that is a, that's a wonderful process that is laid out for us. God willing, two weeks from today, I'll preach from those verses. And then in verses 8 through 11, we see the results of our cooperating with this process of our being transformed. And the things that are mentioned here are things that I really want in my life. I bet you do too. Verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want my life to matter. I want to bear fruit. That's a sweet promise right there. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's a sweet promise. And then verse 11 also, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want that to happen. Just about more than anything I can think of, I want to be sure that I go to heaven when I die and I don't go to hell. And so these are some very sweet promises. Lord willing, uh, three weeks from today, I'll preach on the effects of our participating in this process that the Lord has set up for us to become partakers in the divine nature. Now, it all starts with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain what that means, but look at it there in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And I'll point out to you that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through knowing Jesus that this transforming process commences. Notice, first of all, that the Lord has given us an inexhaustible supply 
of whatever is necessary for this to take place. His, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now remember, we saw earlier that uh, in the Garden of Eden, God spoke to Adam and Eve, who constituted the entire human race, and said, if you disobey me, you will die. And so when, that, when, when our first parents disobeyed, then we died spiritually. They lived for hundreds of years after that. In those days, people would live many, many years. Adam lived to be almost a thousand years old. But he died spiritually on the day that he disobeyed. He continued to be in the image of God. He continued to have godlikeness or godliness in his natural human nature. But he died morally. And morally, he no longer was in the image of God. He no longer was godlike or godly. He was dead and he was ungodly. But look at what this passage of Scripture says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The very things that were destroyed. The very things that, that died when sin came in. Now that can be restored. You can once again be recreated in the image of God morally. And there's no lack of resources for this to take place. Because behind it all is His divine power. And of course, God has all power to accomplish whatever He wants. And so, however we may limp along and fail in our Christian lives, it's not because there is an inadequate supply of power that is afforded to us. His divine power is at our disposal. I can imagine that recreating one of these old junk cars out in the pasture and making it into one of those beautiful shiny automobiles that we'll see in the coming days is a very expensive venture. You've got to have a lot of resources in order to make that happen. Well, in order to take an an old rusty-in-the-field human being who is living his life for his own selfish purposes and under, under the influence of satanic thinking and worldly influences and, and evil desires, to take that and turn it into a trophy of God's grace, it's a very expensive endeavor. But behind it is the bankroll of heaven. His divine power has granted to us. Notice that word grant. What we need, we cannot buy. We cannot earn it with our good works. We have to come and say, Lord, I will take what you give as a gift. Now, that is a humbling, it's a humbling process for us who have a pretty good, who have an idea that we're pretty good people. To just throw it all away and say with the Apostle Paul, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Most of us are unwilling to say, my whole life is just amounted to a big heap of rubbish. Uh, But if you're going to receive God's gift, you must first of all say, I need God to give me everything that I need. 
I read a story years ago about a doctor who grew up in a rural area who uh, would come home and spend several weeks during the summer. And when, it w- when he came home, it was his delight to grant his medical services to his former neighbors and friends free of charge. And so he uh, would just set up a little clinic and uh, people would come to him and, uh, and have him help them. And there was uh, a fellow who needed a procedure done that uh, was really quite expensive, but uh, the doctor performed it free of charge, and it was successful, and the fellow said to the doctor, now, I want to pay you for this. And the doctor said, oh, that's all right. You know, it's my joy to come back and, and give back to the community, and I've known your family for years. Please, uh, it, I receive it as a gift. Well, now, I know I'm, I'm not going to take your charity. And they fussed back and forth for a few minutes until the doctor said, well, the, the procedure that I performed on you would normally cost $10,000. Now, this was a long time ago. It would be a lot more than that today. But he said, the, the procedure that I performed on you would normally cost $10,000. And here's the thing. You've got to either pay all of it or you've got to receive it as a gift. And the man swallowed his pride and said, well, I don't have that kind of money. And so I'm just going to have to receive it as a gift. And the Lord has come down to this earth and... Uh, Out of love, he is offering to us his salvation services, but it's free of charge. And when we come and say, I'm a proud man, I'm a proud woman, I don't want to receive charity, the Lord says, now hold on with that right now. What I am giving to you would cost you an eternity in hell to suffer. And even then, you would never get it paid for. And you've got to either receive my salvation as a free gift Or you've got to pay for all of it yourself. And so then we're left in the situation to say, well, Lord, you leave me no choice. I've got to receive it as a free gift. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That all things includes the work of the Holy Spirit. It includes being able to understand the teaching of his truth, whether you hear it with your ears or whether you read it with your eyes in the Bible. It's not just what is necessary to get you off the road to hell and onto the road of heaven. It is everything that is necessary to transform you into a partaker of the divine nature and restore you to the image of God. All things that pertain to life and godliness, he has granted to us and it comes to us through knowing a person. It's through the knowledge of Him, you see there in verse 3. It's through the knowledge of Him who called us unto His own glory and excellence. Now, obviously, being a, a human being created in the image of God is a glorious thing to be. It is an excellent thing to be. And when we, when we fell into sin and died, then we lost that glory and excellence. And then the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, born of a virgin, never sinned. He lived a glorious and an excellent life. He was full of love for God. He was full of love for other people. He went about doing good things. He taught like no one ever taught. His life was a glorious and an excellent life. 
And then he was crucified. Bad men crucified him. But it was according to God's good plan. And he was put into the grave. And according to uh, what uh, the Lord Jesus predicted and others had predicted, on the third day he came back to life. And now he stands at the finish line. And he... He stands at the finish line of life, and he turns back and he looks at us, still still struggling in the storm, still running in, in the race, but on the straight and narrow way. And he says to us, I'm calling you to a life of glory and excellence. Don't be content with just escaping the flames of hell. I'm calling you to a life of glory and excellence. I'm showing you the way. I'm equipping you with everything that you need to do it. Take advantage of this offering of free grace that I'm giving to you. And it is through knowing Jesus. Now, what does it mean to know Jesus? It's very important. It's different than simply knowing about Jesus. If you just know about Jesus, you might know that he is the Son of God. You might know that he was born of a virgin. You might know that he lived a sinless life. You might know that he died on the cross for sinners and that he arose again. And all of that you can know and still not know Jesus. There is a relationship that you must have with Jesus whereby you take him to be your your boss, and your Savior. The word that the Bible uses is Lord. We don't use that word very much in in modern-day speech. It just means that he is a super boss who tells you everything that you're supposed to do. And so you must receive Jesus as your Lord. That's who he is. He is a Lord who teaches you the way of salvation He is a priest who offers a sacrifice on on our behalf. He is a king who rules over us and defends us. And if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be recreated in the image of God, then you have to receive Jesus. And that's what it means to know him. You become friends with Jesus. And this takes work. Uh, We are accustomed to being friends only with people that we can see people that we can hear. And here we are supposed to be friends with someone who speaks to us through a book, who speaks to us through His Holy Spirit. We we never see Him except as He is presented to us in the truth. And so don't put unrealistic expectations on yourself as to what it means to know Jesus. Uh, my relationship with Jim Bob is going to be different than my relationship with Jesus. I can see Jim Bob. I can shake hands with Jim Bob. We can have breakfast together. I can talk to him. And, And my relationship with Jesus is going to include some of those elements, but all of that is going to be done by faith. That is that I, when I talk to Jesus, I don't hear him talking back, but by faith, I believe that he's listening to me. Uh, I don't feel, literally, the hug of Jesus around my shoulders when I'm upset. But by faith, I believe what He has said. And believe that He is always with us. And uh, you know, my, my faith is sometimes weak. 
But I look to Jesus and trust that He is able to do everything that He has promised to do. And uh, so, this great transformation, being transformed into a partaker of the divine nature, is entirely dependent upon your interaction with Jesus Christ. It's the only way that it's going to happen. You can't get this by reading Plato and Socrates. You can't get this by, you can't get this any other way other than through knowing Jesus Christ. But His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who now calls us by His own glory and excellence. Because He is such a glorious and an excellent person, He has given to us great and precious promises. Look at what it says there in verse 4. By which, and I assume that he's referring back to this glory and excellence, by, because he's such a glorious and an excellent person, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, of course, these precious and, promi- these precious and great promises, we learn about them in the Bible, but they ought to be a great motivation for us. If he has said you may become a partaker of the divine nature, then I hope that this morning some of us are saying, then my aspirations in the Christian life have been way too low. If I may become a partaker of the divine nature, and his divine power has granted to me everything that is necessary for that to take place, that's a tremendous motivation. I'm going, to, I'm going to press on towards that. He's given us these very great and precious promises. And so there's a motivation that comes from behind us as God urges us on with these promises. But He has already fulfilled many of these precious promises. This is a task that He is going to finish. I think that our entrance into heaven is very much influenced by how cooperative we have been with this process through our lives. Let me say that again. I think that our entrance into heaven is very much influenced by how much we have cooperated with the Lord's provision for us to become partakers in the divine nature. I don't know what else to make of verse 11. When it says, for in this way, there will be provided for you, richly provided for you, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, everybody who receives the Lord Jesus Christ is adopted into his family and is going to go to heaven. But not everyone is going to have the same rewards once they get to heaven. Now, don't worry, there's not going to be any jealousy. When we get to heaven, we will see things more clearly and If someone receives a greater reward than we do, then we'll be happy to rejoice that that person has received that reward. Similar to the way that I suppose you parents feel when your child does better in school than you did, or when your child does better in an athletic event than you did. You're not jealous. You don't feel mean towards that child. You rejoice that someone who is dear to you has done better than you. And I think that's the way it will be. When in heaven we see that there are some people who are more richly rewarded than we are. 
But I, I think that one of the results of our listening to what the Spirit is teaching us this morning is that we're saying, I don't want to come limping into heaven with the muffler dragging the ground and, and only two of the cylinders firing in my engine. I don't want to have to be towed into heaven like a heap of junk. And everything that you do in life is going to be tried by fire. And things that will burn up will disappear. Things that won't burn up will remain. And so think about that as you live your life. Am I living my life for things that are just going to be burned up? What does this matter? Or am I living my life for things that the Lord says will last eternally? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. So that's one way that you can test what you're living your life for. Is any of this going to matter in 100 years? And for the things that you just honestly say, well, no, it's not going to matter in 100 years Don't spend your life doing those things. But let me give you a little key. There is is a certain way of living life that can transform even mundane, everyday activities into gold. And that's when you do it for the glory of God. There's a way that you can do dishes that you say, you're standing there doing the dishes and you ask yourself, is this going to matter in 100 years? And the answer is no. But there's another way that you can be doing dishes and you are laying up gold in heaven. And that's if you're doing dishes out of service to your family, out of love to your family. Uh, You say, "This this is a job that the Lord has given me and I want to do it well for him. Uh, in, in ancient days, uh, people who were scientists in those days were called philosophers, and they spent a lot of time trying to discover some kind of concoction that would turn base metals into gold. They thought that maybe it was something that could be discovered, and it was called the Philosopher's Stone. You readers of Harry Potter in the first volume will recall that there was the Sorcerer's Stone that was supposed to turn base metals into gold. Well, that's just, that's just J.K. Rowling's variation on the Philosopher's Stone. That was also called the elixir. An elixir is something that is, turns base metals into gold. And George Herbert has a poem where he says, This is that famous stone that turneth all to gold. When you say, I'm going to do everything that I do for God's glory. So if you're going to become a person who cooperates with the the process of being transformed into a partaker of the divine nature, it doesn't mean that you spend all day reading the Bible and praying and going to church. It means that you do the things in your everyday life for the purpose of glorifying God. And that requires some thought. That requires some uh, consistent application. But if there is something in your life that you cannot do for the glory of God, you should stop doing that thing. It's probably sin. But everything that is not sin that the Lord requires of you, you can do that to the glory of God and you can lay up treasure in heaven. 
so that one day you don't come towed in like a rusty junk heap across the, through the pearly gates, but that you are richly granted an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. And so, uh, He's granted to us these very great and precious promises, and so these promises are incentives. So it's motivation from behind, but also it's incentive from above as we see what may be in store, what may be possible for us. And he has said that through them, through these great and precious promises, note this right in the middle of verse 4, you may become partakers of the divine nature. I think that this is a restoration, once again, to being in the image of God. It doesn't mean that you're going to one day be your own little God with your own little planet. But it does mean that even now, you can be restored to a godly way of thinking. Even now, you can be restored to a godlike way of loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And even now, the Holy Spirit can renew your will so that you make good choices and become a partaker of the divine nature. Essential to this is what says at the end of verse 4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Well, it was sinful desire that opened the sluice gates of corruption into this world to begin with, and it's sinful desires that keeps that muddy torrent flowing, and you and I were in it. At one time. But as a result of God's grace, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Don't dive in again. Don't jump back into that muddy water. You have escaped. And you now may become a partaker of the divine nature. I'm going to quote to you uh, some lines from a couple of my favorite hymns. So one you'll be very familiar with, I think. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? That's Isaac Watts' hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Many of us grew up singing it with the chorus, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. So how does he refer to himself in that first stanza? Such a worm as I. And then uh, this other hymn is uh, a development. In, in the hymn, the, the hymn writer, I believe it's Augustus Top Lady, develops how we've become separated from God, how sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. So. He identifies two problems. There's the corruption of nature, and then there's the enslaving power of Satan. And then in the next three or four stanzas, he, uh, he develops how that through, through grace we may be delivered from both of these. And this is the final stanza in that hymn. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. So, here are two very respected hymn writers who refer to themselves, he refers to himself as worms. And uh, those of us who believe 
in the doctrines of God's sovereign grace understand that unconditional election, particular redemption, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, they all rest upon a foundation that asserts that by nature we are so messed up by sin that we cannot come to Jesus unless God helps us. It's what Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it's called the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you possibly can be, but it does mean that you're so messed up by sin that unless God intervenes and draws you to Jesus Christ, you'll never come to Jesus Christ. And then I'm afraid that many of Our brothers who hold to the same doctrinal beliefs that we do about the sovereignty of God fail to recognize the potential that is in this passage of Scripture and have never understood it and don't embrace it. And so they continue to tell you, after you're converted, you're still an unworthy worm. You still are an unworthy worm. And that's not true. It is true that you are unworthy. You will never have earned enough good works to be worthy of the great grace that the Lord has bestowed upon you. But if you have been born again, you're not a worm anymore. And in defense of Isaac Watts and Augustus Toplady, both of those songs are about conversion. So in the Isaac Watts song, he concludes with, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. It's about conversion. And uh, so also with the top lady's song, a guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. You should not continue to think of yourself as a worm. If you are a child of God, then embrace what it says in 1 John chapter 3, which I read in my scripture reading. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Even now, we are God's children. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. I mean, there's good things in the future, but this we know. When He appears, we shall be made like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Therefore, purify yourselves now. Let this promise be a a motivation and an incentive for you that you are God's child. I've told you this before, but sometimes when I was a boy, my dad would say to me, Son... Don't forget that you're an auric. When I would be leaving to go out, son, don't forget that you're an auric. Our family, he wouldn't go into all this, but this is what he meant. Our family has a good reputation in this community. It has taken years for us to build up a good reputation. Everybody knows that you are the son of the Baptist preacher. And you can ruin our reputation in a single night. So, son, don't forget that you're part of our family. Christian, Don't forget, when God sends you out the door every morning, He says, son, daughter, don't forget whose family you are. You're a Christian. You represent the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be confronted with things today that can sully your reputation, that will tempt you to dive back again into that muddy stream of corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Remember, son, remember, my daughter, I'm with you. I expect good things of you. Aim high. Become a partaker of the divine nature. I have my resources available to you. My divine power has given to you all things that are necessary for life and godliness. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's your Savior. Live like a child of God. Become a partaker of the divine nature. May God grant it. Amen.